0: Welcome to another episode of Emerging Environments.
1: Today on the podcast, we're speaking with Dr. Jessica Green, who is a political scientist and associate professor at the University of Toronto. In our conversation, Jessica tells us about her career path and how she initially didn't think she would end up in academia. She eventually did, however, and received her PhD from Princeton. Now jointly appointed in the Department of Political Science and the School for the Environment at U of T, Jessica's research focuses on climate governance, non-state actors, private authority, and transnational regulation. Jessica is also the author of the book, Rethinking Private Authority, Agents and Entrepreneurs in Global Environmental Governance.
0: We spoke to Jessica about two of her recently published articles, the first on the effectiveness of carbon pricing in reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and the second on how closing corporate tax loopholes is a mechanism that governments can use to facilitate decarbonization. The conversation was really intriguing, and also quite timely, as the Supreme Court of Canada had just handed down their decision on the constitutionality of the federal price on carbon. So naturally, we spent a lot of time talking about that as well. So let's get to the conversation hi jessica thanks for joining us on the podcast
2: thanks so much for having me
0: so before we get into you know the heavy content that is climate change and climate policy we'd love to know a little bit more about you and your career path so i was wondering if you could tell us you know where you came from and uh where you went to school and the things that sort of drove you to become passionate about the things that you study now
2: Oh, wow. Okay, that's a big question. Um, well, I guess the first thing to know about me is that I'm American and I'm a new, uh, a new transplant to Canada as of 2018. Uh, very excited to be uh, Canadian or almost Canadian now. Um, I, you know, I was uh, interested in the environment starting as a kid, really. Um, the kind of the origin story starts in 1992, which was the year of the Earth Summit and Agenda 21, which was something that we sort of did in my school. And I was like, wow, this is a big deal. And Mm -hmm. so that was the really how I kind of got interested. And then through high school and college, I did a lot of environmental organizing uh, for local high school groups and Mm -hmm. uh, then for the Sierra Student Coalition. And I kind of burned out. (laughs) And I was Mm -hmm. like, you know, this is really hard work. And maybe there is another way to go about thinking about how to address environmental problems. And Mm. so that's how I kind of got interested in policy. And I did, I studied public policy as an undergrad, you know, sort of got a flavor for, okay, well, let's think about systemic change. Hmm. And um, after I graduated college, I worked for a a few different um, small groups, none of which was particularly environmental. There were sort of good government uh, groups adjacent to like local politics kind of stuff. And then I decided to get a master's degree and I wanted to do public policy. So I wanted to specialize in environmental policy policy uh, which is, uh, what I did. And after I finished my master's, like my plan was to like do policy. Like I wanted to, you know, work for government or NGO. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's why I did a master's in public administration. And after that I started doing policy work. So I worked for, um, a big think tank in DC called the world resources Institute. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I started doing some contract work for, uh, Uh, United Nations University, which is a UN agency. And then I eventually got hired by them. And I worked there uh, for three years, uh, part of the time in in Tokyo and part of the time in New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was after, or yeah, just after the World Summit on Sustainable Development, which was the follow up to the Rio summit. And the whole, the rage when I was uh, at UNU was looking, was uh, the rage in the sort of environment world uh, in the UN was partnerships, because that was the big outcome of the, the World Summit on Sustainable Development. And, you know, we're going to work with the private sector. We've got to work with NGOs and like, we're, we can do this together, the sustainable development stuff. And there was a huge enthusiasm for it. And, you know, we at UNU did a lot of work on that. Um, and I was thinking to myself, like, why is this a good idea? Like, why, why is everyone so excited about this? I mean, what's the, what's the proof um, that this is really gonna, you know, help promote sustainable development and tackle the kinds of environmental challenges that we, uh, that we face? And I also realized at that time that if I wanted to stay in the UN and do the kind of work that, you know, I was interested in doing that I actually needed a research degree because UNU um, calls itself the think tank of the UN. Mm -hmm. So I was doing a lot of policy research and realized that, like, I just didn't quite have the tools to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, I did it, but like, I wanted to run some research projects and stuff like that. And I just didn't have the credentials. So my plan was to go back to school (laughs) and get a PhD in policy and, um, then go back to working in the policy world. Mm -hmm. And so I, I did my PhD at Princeton at the Woodrow Mm -hmm. Wilson school. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's actually, it's no longer called the Woodrow Wilson school, the school of international and public affairs. Um, I had a fantastic advisor, um, who you know, my plan was to like, okay, get in and get out, like sort of do, you know, get the credential. And, um, at the time, you know, that, that really wasn't on the menu for a lot of, that wasn't the traditional route Mm -hmm. for people who are doing their PhD. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, you go, you get a PhD and you go into the Academy. And I hadn't really thought about that. And, um, I don't know, that's just where I wound up. <laughs> so, um, you know, I guess at that, you know, during the course of my PhD, I really got socialized into like doing serious social science research and um, got the tools to do that. And then, you know, I sort of changed course and decided to become an academic instead.
1: Okay, so here wow. I am,
2: that's the short <laughs> version.
1: Wow, that that's quite an interesting journey. Um, and so now you're at U of T, you've been here since 2018, you said, yeah, yep. in, um, so you're in the political science department but also uh, cross-appointed in the School for the Environment. That's right. Um, and so so you you were sort of broadly interested in environment and now you seem very focused on climate change policy. Um, so maybe you can give us a little bit of a flavor for kind of the research questions that are kind of driving your work at the moment. So I
2: started um, my earlier work when I was in my uh, writing my dissertation and then as a assistant prof was really about the role of non-state actors in environmental governance. And so the question was like, what are they doing and how do they get authority to do the things that they're doing? Mm-hmm. And that's what my book is on. Um, and it, it pulled me a lot of that work Um, pulled me into the world of climate partially because that's what I had to like, that's what my real world experience was. And I think, um, you know, my work was really motivated by the time that I spent in the policy world. And um, that was really helpful. Um, But then I sort of pulled back and, you know, was looking at these bigger kind of political science questions about the nature of authority. And um, but a lot of the cases were looking specifically at climate and um, climate governance, carbon markets and the role of non-state actors and sort of as I delved more deeply into it the climate regime kind of evolved it just I don't know it was I was just sort of more naturally drawn to some kind of more I won't say instrumental, but, or like applied questions about like, well, who is this really working? Are people really doing what they say they're doing? And, mm-hmm. you know, how do we actually get to meaningful reductions in carbon emissions and meaningful progress on, on decarbonization? Um, what are the pathways to do that? And so the first order question there is like, uh, what are we doing now? Which mm-hmm. is, you um, it's in part a descriptive question, which, you know, political science kind of poo-poo's that and says, well, we have to do, you know, meaningful causal inference and figure <laughs> out the conditions under which, you know, we should expect to see X or Y outcome. And some of my work does that, but some of it is, you know, more kind of descriptive work about how do we understand the nature of climate action
1: today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so some political science, some more like social science type uh, lens on on some of these questions. Uh, so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about a study that you recently published Um I guess it kind of reflects on this question you were saying about what are we doing now? And it, it talks about the effectiveness of carbon pricing. Yeah. Um, specifically focused on, you know, how effective is it in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions? And I guess you could ask that question in different ways, uh, thinking about effectiveness, but ultimately (laughs) we want to, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Right. So, so maybe, um, just for, uh, for our listeners who might not know that much about carbon pricing, maybe you can give us a quick rundown on, on what that is and, and how it's intended to work. Um. Yeah, so carbon pricing 101. Um,
2: there's, <laughs> there's two ways to price carbon. Um, one is through a carbon tax and the other is through what's called a cap and trade um, system both have the intention basically of making emitting ghgs greenhouse gases more expensive and so the idea is as you drive up the price you both discourage consumption which is politically a little bit problematic but put that aside for the moment you discourage consumption and you encourage innovation so the idea is as you know as carbon becomes more emitting carbon becomes more expensive those who are you know, at the point of um, emissions, right, like fossil fuel companies or electric utilities or heavy manufacturers, figure out how to reduce their emissions um, through efficiency improvements and ultimately fuel switching or full-on decarbonization. So that's the logic. And then that can be uh, affected through these two different policies. A carbon tax is exactly what it sounds like. Um, Uh, Basically, consumer usually, well, producers uh, pay more for the carbon that they emit per ton. Uh, Right now, the cost of carbon in uh, Canada is $30 uh, per ton. Um, And then then some of that cost obviously gets passed on to the consumer. Um, Sometimes uh, there's a rebate involved. So if you pay tax more uh, for your carbon um, as a consumer, then some of that gets rebated back to you. A cap and trade system works differently. Uh, Basically uh, the state or the province or the country sets a cap on the amount of emissions that uh, they're going to allow. And then each uh, regulated entity, again, these are usually large emitters like uh, electric utilities or manufacturers, um, has a certain, they have to buy allowances in order to have the right to pollute. And since there's a fixed number of them, Then they have to sort of figure out how to, you know, what's the cost benefit of buying allowances versus reducing their emissions. Usually, those, ideally, those allowances are auctioned off, although sometimes they're, some of them are distributed for free. Um, And then the idea is that the cap uh, that is set by the government gets ratcheted down over time. So the allowances become more scarce and therefore um, more uh, expensive there's, that's the basic idea. Then there's things like offsets and banking and borrowing. And there's a lot of sort of bells and whistles that you can put um, on the policy. But that's the basic idea.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, so you've kind of done a a meta analysis of, you know, various regions who have imposed different types of carbon pricing taxes or cap and trade. Um, And so what did your recent study find? So the logic
2: of the study was that um, now I think it's now 40% of emissions in the world are subject to some form of a carbon price. And, you know, it is economic gospel that if you put a price uh, if you internalize the environmental externality through a price, then you're going to, you know, reduce emissions. And there are Literally hundreds of thousands of papers written about how uh, this has, you know, has worked or should, sh- how this would work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to know if it really does work. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of ways, as you mentioned before, to define effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And you know, people can say, okay, well, does it promote innovation? Does it promote fuel switching? Does it increase the number of patents? Does it, you know, affect employment? But Mm -hmm. I just care about tons, right? Because we should just care about tons right now. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to look at, does it reduce emissions? And I, what I looked at specifically was the studies that only did um, an examination ex post of the performance of carbon pricing policies. So not models, um, not any sort of uh, theoretical explication, but like, how did it actually perform? So the first thing that I found was that we have, uh, I I mean, I probably missed a couple, but uh, after an exhaustive review, I found 37 papers that actually do this kind of ex post analysis of how many, you know, how many tons have been reduced, which is in and of itself, a fairly shocking finding. You know, we have as received wisdom that this is a great idea, this is a great policy, and yet we have very little empirical evidence to support that assertion.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, the second thing I found was that, uh, on the whole, carbon pricing doesn't reduce emissions that much. You know, on the order of one to two percent per year,
1: mm-hmm. which
2: ain't a lot. Um, and you know, it's difficult. There's, there's a lot of things that make this a very difficult thing to measure, right? Particularly Mm -hmm. if you have, you know, other, um, other climate policies going on that are also, so you have to isolate the causal effects of individual policies. And so it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, Mm -hmm. but the numbers are not big and and they're sort of universally not big. So even within some margin of error, you know, it's, um, and again, there is some variation across jurisdictions, but uh, we're not seeing a huge amount of reductions um, from, from carbon pricing. And a lot of what we see is not decarbonization, right? It's not mm-hmm. like, oh, we're swapping out for solar. It's efficiency improvements, right? Okay. Or fuel switching, um, mm-hmm. which if you're switching to from coal to gas is like, again, then you're making a capital investment that you expect returns on for on the order of a few decades, right? So you're actually Mm -hmm. exacerbating, arguably exacerbating carbon lock in, right? Uh, Because you you built in this infrastructure that uh, is gonna be there for a while, Mm -hmm. uh, this fossil infrastructure. And then the third thing I found is that um, most of the studies, like pretty much half of the studies focus on the EU Mm-hmm. Um, the EU mm-hmm. has the largest emissions trading scheme. It's the oldest one since 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, um, the, mu- the numbers here are quite small. Like on average across all sectors, it's maybe one to two percent per year. Uh, there is some variation. Like some sectors and some countries have had uh, much bigger numbers, like maybe ten to fifteen. One I think is seventeen percent, but mm-hmm. um, you know, not economy wide. Um, and, you know, the, I think this is actually a really important finding, first of all, because, um, you know, we don't, most of the studies are focused on one jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't have a lot of information about other places. And secondly, the EU is the most, it's a best case scenario. It's what, right. you know, in social science, we would call most likely case, right? Mm-hmm. Because there is political will supporting you um, supporting climate action, right? The EU has been a leader in climate action for decades. Um, mm-hmm. And second, they have a huge amount of capacity. I mean, there's literally like armies of <laughs> bureaucrats working on how to create rules, implement them, verify them and so on and so forth. So we would expect the EU of all places to do uh, the best job and still what we see is is not, um, definitely not knocking it out of the park.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, so this. Sorry, go
0: ahead. I was going to say, so because of that, you know, it seems, you know, relatively ineffective in maybe most cases. Um, so you've made the point that we should be also be thinking about wealth accumulation and inequality, and you know how those factor into decarbonization. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit.
2: Yeah. Let me just say one other thing about the carbon pricing paper is that sure, it's yeah. It, uh, I think I can say this on the podcast, it's pissed a lot of people off, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. people, are like, particularly economists, but like, my, my timeline has been um, a little bit uh, dicey, because, you know, um, there are a lot of people who are very invested in this policy who say, well, mm-hmm. the price just isn't high enough, or, you mm-hmm. know, um, I didn't look at this, that or the other thing. But, you know, I think it's a pretty robust study. And I think it, know, the reactions to it have shown that there is this real commitment to uh, market solutions. And um, Mm -hmm. it really depends on what you think the problem is. And so, you know, kind of pivoting to your question, Stuart, like, you know, if you think the problem is, well, we just don't have enough technological innovation, then yeah, maybe, maybe uh, carbon price might work. But if you think the problem is really about wealth uh, accumulation and inequality, then, you know, carbon pricing is not the answer, right? Mm, it's just, there. Mm. it's a different, there are different problems. And so in this other paper that I recently published, um, uh you know it begins from the premise that we see these kind of marginal effects of carbon pricing and, and asks well you know what should we do instead um and the proposal is to really think about the structural power of those actors who are interested in slowing progress on decarbonization
0: mm. Mm.
2: so if you're a fossil fuel company or an electric utility or a cement manufacturer mm. or a mining company um or uh, to some extent a car manufacturer you have a vested interest in maintaining the value of your assets. And what that means is slowing progress on decarbonization, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, maintaining as much as possible the status quo. And like, we really haven't wrestled with that problem at the international level that, you know, it's not um, that we should worry about cheaters right, which was kind of the traditional thinking is, oh, the problem, this is a collective action problem, and so we have to think about free riders, mm-hmm. um, and we, you know, because if someone is cheating, then nobody will do the work, because they, you right know, um, but in fact, that's that that's not the bulk of the problem. The bulk of the problem is these really powerful actors who are obstructing progress on climate change,
0: mm-hmm. right,
2: and right. so if you think about the problem that way, then the question becomes, well, how do you either constrain or counteract the structural power of these obstructionists. Mm. And the proposal that I floated um, uh, in this paper is, well, we need to make sure that wealthy companies pay their taxes, Mm. which um, is um, also has pissed some people off, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm good at that. Um, and, And so, I mean, the idea is actually not that um, outlandish, I think, in a way, because, you know, there's a lot of work by um, economists that show, first of all, the extreme growth in wealth inequality Mm -hmm. uh, over the last couple of decades um, and the extent to which the wealthy, both individual actors and corporations, don't pay their taxes. They Mm -hmm. offshore their, um, their, their wealth in tax havens. And they take advantage of differences in um, tax rates and the way that uh, taxes are reported um, to pay as little tax as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem because we know that wealth is directly correlated with emissions, right? There is a recent mm-hmm. paper that came out from Oxfam that says that the wealthiest 1% of the world's population emits as much as the poorest 50%. Mm -hmm. So the idea that this is a, this is a, you know, we're all in this together is just not true. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. And we haven't grappled with that reality or many people have not grappled with that reality because it's a really, it's not controversial. It's, it means conflict, Mm -hmm.
1: right? If we Mm -hmm. just put a price on
2: carbon, you know, then like, we don't have to fight. I mean, we do fight about it. We fight about it a lot. (laughs) Yes. But like, it's like, if you go to the store and something's too expensive, you don't buy it, right? But that's, that's a totally different approach than saying, okay, well, you are, um, you know, a contributing member of society, and you have to pay your fair share. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that requires a lot more political effort.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so if um, so, this is something that that governments could do. They do have power to to modify corporate taxes or corporate tax loopholes, etc. Um, and so, how does how would that then, you know, thinking you know down the road, how would that then lead to or facilitate decarbonization or radical decarbonization that that we need, you know, to to achieve emissions reductions.
2: Um, Okay, so the, uh, I don't have a perfect answer for that. Um, my, My answer to that would be to the extent that you can curb the wealth of very powerful actors, you can reduce their power. You can reduce the influence that they have on political processes. And we know that they exercise a lot of influence on political processes, including around climate change. Right, that there. I I'm not exactly sure what the figure is, but uh, there's a study that shows that you know the fossil fuel industry has contributed over like two million, two hundred million dollars mm-hmm. or something in lobbying over the last few years in the mm-hmm. U.S. Um, you know, so we we have to we have to confront the reality that these actors are distorting the political process, and that's costing us a lot of time and making progress on decarbonization.
0: I've got a question about. You know, trying to, I guess, decode the way politicians talk about this issue. Prepping to talk to you, I watched a few ministers talk about this particular issue and the recent ruling that we'll talk about, I think, in a second. Um, But, you know, you often hear ministers refer to other ministers just saying, you know, they didn't look at the data. They don't understand how this plays out in reality. And you end up with both sides just saying that exact same thing. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, if there's something is there a direction we can point people towards to try and uh, have a better understanding of, of what that data says? So, so you've done these papers obviously, but you know, the average person trying to understand carbon pricing and that sort of thing um, when they're dealing with vague statements from politicians, what, what can they do to try and better understand the issue?
2: Yeah. Well, I I mean, I, I guess I think it's a losing proposition. Like who, (laughs) nobody cares about carbon pricing. Mm. Like I don't, I mean, I care about how much I pay at the pump or how Mm -hmm. much I pay for my electricity bill, but like, I don't care about carbon pricing. I think it's a politically, it's a bad way to frame climate policy Mm -hmm. because all like individuals can understand really is like, this is going to cost me. Or maybe I'll get a check at the end of the year, Mm -hmm. but like, then why did I have to pay this in the first place?
0: Yeah, so it's more more about reframing the question altogether. I
2: I mean, I think if you told um, people that, um, you know, what this government cares about is uh, jobs, uh, infrastructure, and cheap and clean energy, they'd say, that sounds good. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you mm-hmm. talk to like uh, Rihanna Gunn Wright, who um, was one of the main people behind the Green New Deal uh, that AOC presented uh, mm-hmm. with Ed Markey a couple years ago, said, you know, when I talk about the Green New Deal, I don't talk about climate change. I talk about jobs, health mm-hmm. and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I think that that, you know, what we have to do is talk about climate change. Cli- Climacy. That's actually a good one. I like that. Climate <laughs> policy in a way that front loads benefits. So if you tell the average, you know, Canadian, uh, well, the government is going to pay you for your clunker, you know, to buy back your your old gas belching car, and it's going to subsidize your purchase of an electric vehicle or make public transportation mm-hmm. You know, much more widespread and and possibly you know reduce the price or make it free. Then you know that's a win-win, right? That's a political win for sure because um, voters can get behind those kinds of things, and it's obviously a win for the environment. So I think that's the kind of way that we need to think about this: is front-loading benefits um, and back-loading costs. And climate uh, carbon taxing and carbon pricing does exactly the opposite. It says you should pay us now for mm-hmm. this benefit that you're going to get later, mm-hmm. you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're recording this interview the day after the Supreme court ruling um, that a federal carbon tax is constitutional. Um, so, you know, from your perspective, you know, what, to what extent is this price on carbon going to make a difference or help, help Canada reach its Paris agreement targets or, you know, I don't know, help with communicating the climate change issue with, with people?
2: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, one of the disadvantages of my critiques of carbon pricing <laughs> is that like, it's not going to go away, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We're not going to just dismantle um, the programs that exist, although I have argued for not expanding them and certainly not linking them together. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so the question is, what do we do, right? And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I do think that the Supreme Court ruling is, is a qualified success. And um, here's why. One, is because it invokes, and again, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, so, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I'm not even Canadian, so.
0: uh, (laughs) But it
2: invokes the peace, uh, order, and good governance clause of the Constitution, Mm -hmm. which is quite important, right? Because it says, look, climate change is an existential crisis, it's an existential threat, and therefore, the federal government has authority to take measures that we might not necessarily uh, think were constitutional under other Uh, circumstances Mm -hmm. and do this, right? And I think that's important not only for Canada, which is this like crazy loose federation of provinces that barely (laughs) act in a coordinated fashion, Mm -hmm. but also important for other countries, other federated countries, right? To say that, you know, this sets a legal precedent for, you know, strong government, federal government intervention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one reason that um, it's, it's a good thing. The second is, Um, well, the second is that it means that I think what it means is that, uh, the federal government and now the liberal party, um, is going to have to, uh, pony up, right? Because Mm -hmm. you could say like in the U S we refer to this as an unfunded mandate, right? When the the federal government says to the States, you have to do this, but we're not giving you any money. Mm -hmm. Right especially considering the degree to which p- carbon pricing has polarized the nation. I think this is a sort of, you break it, you buy it situation, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Where the, where the feds have said, okay, you have to do this. And now, you know, the conservatives are going to say, and, you know, particularly in the Western provinces are going to say, okay, well, if, you know, make us like help us. Mm-hmm. And right. You know, they're going to, uh, so I think it may force the liberal party to actually do more beyond just you know, give this, like, exhortation mm-hmm. that you must price carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the third thing is, it's, if the Liberal Party actually does what it say what it says it's going to do, or isn't in, in power long enough for this to happen, mm-hmm. it will raise the carbon price to one of the highest in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, the common rejoinder to, you know, Uh, Well, the reason that carbon pricing isn't working is because the prices aren't high enough. That's what an economist would say. You just Mm -hmm. make it more expensive and then that'll change behavior. Well, there's a political reason for which the prices aren't high enough. And so that's the problem. But, you know, Trudeau has said, okay, so now it's $30 a ton. Next year, it's $40 a ton. And then starting in 2022, it goes up $15 a year To um, 2030, when it's supposed to be 170 bucks a ton, which is would be one of the highest prices in the world, Mm -hmm. and I think maybe at that price, okay, then we're going to start to see some real action. The -hmm. question is, are they actually going to do that? Like, are they going to, are they going to, you know, first of all, are they going to be in power? Who knows? Mm -hmm. And second of all, Mm -hmm. if they are, will they actually carry through um, with that with that trajectory?
0: Yeah, yeah
1: yeah well we'll see it's interesting (laughs) interesting times i guess um so i wanted to uh shift gears a little bit and um and just you know i'm curious as you know as an academic and and a climate scientist who has been you know somewhat i guess reticent to um engage um in with the, with the media with the public that's my my own personality but also given some of the backlash climate scientists experience and um you know, you engage a lot with the media and with the public. And, you know, I, in, in preparation for this interview, there, there are many, many articles I've, I've seen with you kind of have being interviewed um, with media and such. And so I'm just curious to hear your perspective and, and why, why you think it's important for, for academics and researchers to, to be engaging um, more broadly with the public in this way. Um, Yeah, well, I wrote a piece uh, for the
2: Chronicle that was then published in Daedalus called Why We Need a More Activist Academy. And uh, I think that um, there's a couple reasons. One, it's boring just to talk to people who speak (laughs) your same language. (laughs) Um, And two, you know, what we work on is really important, you know, and I think, you know, we're taught as academics to always qualify and give caveats and footnote and but you know that that belittles the fact that we are experts we know a lot of stuff we've spent a long time you know accruing all that information and that is a public good you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. having that information Mm -hmm. is a public good and being able to you know digest that and share it i think is also a public good um so that's that's one reason Um, Another is that I think, like, as I said before, you know, a lot of my dissertation research came out of time that I was in the policy world. And I think the more that academics engage with the real world, the better research they do. Like, Mm. I I think it's a it's a two way street that way. Mm. Just being, you know, it keeps me um, on top of what's going on in political processes and that, you know, feeds into my my research questions. Um, And then the final reason is the one that uh, I, well, there's two more reasons. Uh, (laughs) One is that it's a form of teaching, right? That's what we do. Like we're, you know, we're researchers, but we're also teachers and talking to the public and talking to the media is a form of teaching. And so I think, you know, it's incumbent upon us to do that. And finally, and I I think most importantly, it goes back to this question of, you know, the structural power of um, those who would delay climate policy is like, you know, we're up against some extremely powerful forces that are, you know, pushing towards the status quo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we don't throw every thing we have in the book, you know, at that, then we're not going to make progress. You know, it's a form of, it's, it's a form of not only, um, Uh, it's a form of engaged advocacy, but it's also a way to try and build solidarity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we need to understand um, that it's not that we, we're all in this together, but a lot of us are, Mm -hmm. and we need to understand that. You know, we need to understand that, you know, we're, uh, many of us are trying to pull oars in the same direction, and it's only through creating connections and having conversations um, like the one we're having now. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, building that narrative in the media that, that we can try and actually, you know, build a strong set of um, actors who are countering uh, those powerful forces and who are trying to build a real, you know, uh, movement for much more aggressive climate action.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 In uh, in being an active communicator on this topic, I was wondering, well, I be surprised if you didn't have to deal with you know so called trolls <laughs> and those people trolling you, whether it be on Twitter or in other forums elsewhere? So I was wondering if you, first of all, do you deal with that, and then if if so, how do you how do you navigate that? How do you navigate that world and stay positive? You know.
2: Yeah, um, I, I've been pretty lucky, knock wood, that like I haven't had too much of that. Um, I would say that there's like, in my sort of universe of like climate Twitter, um, (laughs) there are definitely disagreements. But I I mean, as I said, I've pissed off a lot of economists, but it tends to be pretty respectful, relentless, but respectful. Mm -hmm. Um, and so sometimes I engage with that and and sometimes I don't, and I've had some offline conversations with, um, people that I disagree with, which have been, I think helpful again, in this idea Mm -hmm. of like, we're all in this together. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. we may have different opinions, but like, you know, this is ultimately like, we all want to try and make a difference and help fix this problem. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. other, like, then there's the other set of trolls who are just like, (laughs) crazy people I mean crazy people like you know climate deniers or,
0: or bots you know, even or, right uh,
2: yeah some bots and that you just kind of you know ignore and mm-hmm. for I, I would imagine that if it happened all the time that it would be pretty discouraging but for me it hasn't been too much that when it does happen I just kind of log off for a little while and then <laughs> you know remind is myself that there's a world out beyond my timeline. Yeah.
0: That sounds like a healthy, healthy approach, I think. <laughs>
1: um, so maybe just to uh, wrap up, um, we've talked about, you know, the, the challenges kind of facing decarbonization and it's a, it's a pretty wicked problem dealing trying yeah. to uh, deal with climate change. And so What, what advice would you give to kind of students or, you know, young people who are interested in, in getting into this field and potentially pursuing a career in climate change policy? Um, What would, you know, given the landscape as it is now, kind of what would, what advice would you give?
2: Yeah, this is the part when I go to lectures, like that the old (laughs) white guy says, get involved, volunteer, you know, and it's like, ugh. I mean, yeah. I, I, it's so hard, right? Because mm-hmm. everything is, in, you know, I think we're really living through a moment in world history um, with coronavirus and mm-hmm. also the climate crisis. And it's so weird. Like everything is sort of boring, but also the world is shifting, you know, mm-hmm. sort of constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really hard to know. I mean, I think, um, I guess my, my advice would be first to just talk to people. Um, you know, I never, I tell all of my students, I never got a job that I applied for. Mm -hmm. Um, like you have to go out there and you know talk to people and see what you know what people are doing what's what different organizations are working on an issue what are their opinions what kinds of things are they doing and just like knock on doors um i mean you know electronically yeah Um, Yeah. and because i think that's a way to just sort of figure out what's out there in the world Mm -hmm. and then um you know pick something. And it's probably like the first thing you pick, probably you won't like that. That's, that's how it goes. But then you can eliminate that from the list, you know? (laughs) Um, So I think talking to people is really important, you know, and follow your gut. Like I, you know, when I was a a wee lass, like that's, I just got fired up about things and I just Mm -hmm. did it. You know, I just was like, well, how do I, who do I talk to to do that? Like, I want to do that. And then, you know, I, it was really rewarding because I really cared about what I was doing Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, then I would get burnt out or bored or things would go wrong. And then, you know, I'd have to sort of rethink it. Um, But, um, you know, I think it's really hard to have like, a 10 year plan. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I think we just have to sort of take things as they come. And I guess the final thing I would say is like, I've recognized, I think it's changed in my lifetime, but like the political system that we live in now is, is profoundly broken. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to understand the extent to which that's the case. And that we, you know, we're all, we're all vulnerable because of that. I mean, COVID is a, you know, very, very clear example. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, figure out, like, what do we do if you, can, if you care about climate, like, how do we fix this broken system, you know, what's, what's the entry for you that, you know, is, you know, either is physically, financially, uh, geographically feasible, and something that, you know, floats your boat, you know, just mm-hmm. try it. Mm-hmm. The worst that can happen is it won't work out. <laughs>
1: Right. Right. I think sometimes that's, that's hard for students to appreciate, right. That it's not a straight line from it's never a, No, it's never a straight line. And, you know, yeah. and I think,
2: you know, the world of work is changing so much that, um, you know, it's not, it's not a straight line. Um, yeah. And that's, that's really hard when you're figuring out what your first steps are going to be. And I, I guess my advice is just take the first step and then, yeah see what comes after that yeah. but it, it's scary I, I get it it was <laughs> scary for me too
0: yeah well jessica we know you have a full uh, schedule today uh, probably lots of other interviews given the recent <laughs> ruling so we'll, we'll leave you to do those other things but t- thanks for taking the time to join us today on the podcast we really appreciate it
2: oh my pleasure it was lovely to talk to you both
0: all right take care
2: bye